0: This is going to sound incredibly weird, but for as long as I remember from the age of 10, I've just always believed I have a manifest destiny to do this. I always, if you ask my mom when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I'd pick up magazines and I'd be like, I'm going to be that guy or that woman one day. Like, I'm going to be very, very, very successful.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm your co-host, Pat. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Founder Hour podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Founder Hour. All right. So for episode 36, Pasha and I sat down with Ari Mir, the co-founder of Clutter, Clutter is an on-demand storage and moving company. They come to you, pack your belongings, and then transport them to their local storage facility. In the process, your items are photographed and made into an online catalog so you can literally request any item back anywhere. They're currently operating in seven major U.S. cities, including L.A., San Francisco, New York, and Chicago. We had an incredible conversation with Ari about fundraising, team building, and his several ventures before starting Clutter. It was really in college when he recognized his entrepreneurial spirit and decided to go after that. Tune in to learn what his journey was like. Also, we have a special offer for you, our listeners. Use the code founder75 for a $75 credit towards clutter storage or moving services. Here we go.
2: Hey, everyone. We're here on the Founder Hour podcast with our guest, Ari Mir, who's the co-founder and CEO of Clutter. And he's also started several businesses and sold businesses in the past as well. So we're excited to be here at Clutter. uh, And thank you for having us. We're excited for this conversation.
0: Of course. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming by.
2: So I saw that you were recently in Chicago. Uh, I saw it on your Instagram stories. I did a little bit of stalking. (laughs) Um, I guess, why were you there?
0: So we operate in seven markets, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, New York, New Jersey, and Chicago. Nice. And so I was there uh, making sure that the team felt appreciated. Uh, and then I also had a lot of interviews that day, uh, just doing some local team building yeah. to help uh, support them.
2: Were you, were you always uh, in Los Angeles? Did you grow up here?
0: So I, I moved to Los Angeles when I was four years old. And uh, from, so I, I spent the first four years of my life in Paris Okay, and then, so I moved when I was four years old to Pacific Palisades mm-hmm. and I never left LA. Mm-hmm. I, I love Los Angeles and I've been living here uh, ever since, except for a two year stint in San Francisco.
2: Do you remember your time in uh France as a kid.
0: It's funny. One of my first memories was eating a madeleine cookie <laughs> or biscuit. I don't know what they call it. Yeah. Uh, while watching the Winter Olympics on a on a black and white TV, and to this day, I still love madeleines. Wow. Do know. you
2: still love the Winter Olympics? No, I really hate them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: and they say memory starts like after five or something. So it must have been a very distinct.
0: There's two know, memories memory. I have from Paris. One was the the you know the madeleine uh, cookie, and then the other was. Being in a toy store and my mom saying I can't have one of the toys.
2: (laughs) Ari, I know that you also attended USC just like Pat and I. Um, Fight on. Yeah, fight on on for sure. Uh, And last night I actually was watching this video on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it. It was a – it was – the USC women's track and field team. Did you have a chance to watch no, it? No, no. What happened? They, this was an insane match. It was a four. I think it was a four by four hundred yeah. relay race, and we were like in fourth or fifth place the entire time. And um, like before literally the, the last, last five before the last seconds, round, like
1: yeah. they fumbled the baton, and like yeah. USC's like in like fourth place, Yeah. and all of a sudden, like literally, like I don't know. Not even a few yards before yeah. the finish line, she just like has this crazy burst of mm-hmm. energy and just passes three people and wins. Wow! Yeah, yeah you it should was, watch it. We'll it send. It doesn't do it, it. justice yeah. by talking about I'll it.
2: But, but the reason I bring it up is, what is your favorite fight on moment that you have in your that you've had in your life, where you were losing the race, like the entire time you were losing, and then you just you just came back. Whether it was the willpower, whether it was. I have to fucking win? Like, what was it? What what was that memory?
0: That's a, a great question. When we were, uh, when my co-founder Brian and I were raising our Series A mm-hmm. for Clutter, uh, we made it to a final partner meeting with Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, Sequoia being the premier investor in the world, that was an intimidating meeting. Mm-hmm. And so we were sitting across from legends like, Roloff, Alfred, Doug, Jim, uh, and another half a dozen to a dozen partners. And 80% of the way through the pitch, I just had a a, a realization that it wasn't going well because I wasn't being my authentic self. And I said to myself uh, quietly in my mm-hmm. own head, you're not going to walk out of here not having – given it 110% of what you have. Mm-hmm. And so I just stopped and I changed the tone and I went from being a reactive participant in the conversation where I was answering questions to leaning in and challenging each and each and uh, every one of them individually. And so what I did was I picked them out um, one at a time and I said, Alfred, this is why I disagree with you. Jim, this is why I disagree with you. Doug, this is why I disagree with you. And it got pretty heated yeah. uh, and then just ended because we had run out of time. <laughs> and I walked out of the meeting and I said to Brian, I, I'm sorry, I just had to do that. I couldn't leave the, the room not fighting back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I later found out one of the many reasons that they invested in clutter was that we fought back. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so it was a, a turning point for the company. That's awesome. So
1: we'll definitely get into clutter um, but I know it wasn't your first venture so kind of going back um, I know you studied business in college directly after college what did you what was the vision I guess for you and what did you end up doing?
0: Well I went to USC and I was fortunate enough to get into their undergrad um, Marshall Scholars program and uh, it was a great program because it felt like an MBA but you know in your during your undergraduate years mm-hmm. and so you didn't really have to take any arts. Uh, or science classes. You just focused on accounting, finance, the fundamentals of business. Mm. And about halfway through, I realized I know that I want to be an entrepreneur in my life. And so, why not just get started now? And so I started to de-emphasize my academics and started to ideate businesses that I wanted to uh, get off the ground. And I decided I wanted to launch a print publication an actual magazine mm-hmm. and so I spent the last uh, year and a half at USC starting this magazine mm-hmm. and I was successful in starting the magazine, but I was starting to fail my uh, classes
1: and this was called eating magazine right uh, yeah it was, called and was were you like into food was that was that what it was or was it
0: I, I used to do this thing where I would go to the newsstand and I would just ask myself what's missing huh. and what I felt was missing was a magazine that was that combines the got so restaurant reviews with the content of a bon appetit and so i started a magazine called eating and i remember you know i spent all year find trying to find writers photographers graphic designers um i've you know printers in china willing to manufacture the magazine and by the end of the year um my last semester at usc i i woke up in uh, and i and i and i it, it hit me that i hadn 't attended any of my classes i hadn 't taken any tests i didn 't even know what classrooms my classes were in mm-hmm. uh, and so there was no way I was going to graduate and so but at the same time, I felt like I really embodied the u s c spirit because yeah. like when you 're in high school in Los Angeles, the only thing you ever hear about u s c is it 's the best school to be an entrepreneur at mm-hmm. and so I had just gotten a copy of the magazine hot off the presses, not hot off the press, um, and I spent all weekend writing an essay about why I embodied the USC spirit, what I had learned making this magazine, what it meant to me, and uh, that I was sorry that I hadn't, you know, gone to any of my classes, and, and it wasn't, I didn't do it to disrespect any of the professors or, or, or the university for that matter. So I took a copy of the magazine. Um, and uh, a copy of the essay, and I slid it under each professor's door. I didn't even have the, the courage or the confidence to uh, speak to them face to face.
1: They might have not even recognized you. At that they, they wouldn't have <laughs> recognized
0: me. I, I had literally not gone to any classes. And to my surprise, <laughs> I got a few A's, a few B's, a few C's, maybe one D, but I passed every single class. I was able to graduate that year. And by the way, I graduated early in three years versus four. <laughs> and uh, it was a huge turning point in my life. Um, but I'm not gonna lie, to this day I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, uh, you know, because I, I had a nightmare that I didn't graduate. Wow. Yeah. So but to you, this day, but it's you still, did, right? You I have did. the diploma. No, I yeah. graduated. They it's, sent it to you. Yeah. You just opened But the door it was door like, oh, so close right <laughs> that to this day I still it still <laughs> haunts me. But I did graduate. So So you
2: hung it somewhere, so you like know like this happened.
0: No, it's actually in storage with clutter. (laughs) 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 That's good.
1: Uh, So this itch you mentioned, like this itch or this desire, this realization that you had that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, like in college. Where does that stem from? Like as a as a kid, I mean, were your parents entrepreneurs or people around you and your family and your friends? Like, where do you think that comes from?
0: Yeah, I mean, so. It's interesting. So I went to a high school in Sherman Oaks called Buckley. Mm-hmm. And a lot of successful entrepreneurs came out of that school. And recently I was at a networking at a networking event and there was a a prolific investor there who asked all of us because we just happened to be in the same room that day, "Why did Buckley produce so many successful entrepreneurs?" And I said to him, "Well, because Buckley was mostly comprised of immigrants." Um, And there's something to be said about seeing your family pick up and move from one country to another, start over, work seven days a week, work 14 hours a day, and then make something of themselves so that they can um, put their, you know, family through, uh, you know, private school or private university or whatever it may be. Um, Just knowing that it's possible uh, goes a long way. And, And so... Uh, I definitely grew up in a, in a family environment where a hundred percent of my family members were all entrepreneurs.
2: Mm. Were they in the same space that you're in now or? Uh,
0: no, they were, uh, they had started companies manufacturing either office furniture Mm -hmm. or home furnishings.
2: Did you ever want to get into the, you know, quote unquote family business or you just always wanted to do your own thing?
0: I, I always wanted to do my own thing. All from from day one
2: so you graduate USC and you have this magazine does that turn into anything do you continue that after you graduate
0: it, it turned into a lot of debt uh, specifically credit card debt <laughs> uh, I didn't have a, a penny to my name I you know put myself through college uh, with scholarships and some side hustles and uh, you know so I funded the magazine for four years using either the advertisements that I sold or um, Or uh, credit cards that I had taken out. And so by the end of the four years, I had, I think, you know, accumulated $50,000 of credit card debt, which is, you know, very scary when you're, you know, in your early 20s. And I exceeded my risk tolerance. And even though people love the magazine, we just weren't successful at making it a sustainable business Mm -hmm. because it was never properly funded. Uh, And so I shut it down and I decided to go – take a job somewhere.
1: So you end up uh taking a job. What 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 did you end up doing um and uh how long were you there for?
0: I worked for a great entrepreneur in LA named Farhad. He was the founder of a company called Shopzilla, yeah. a comparison shopping website. You would go to it and you would search for TVs and it would give you all the prices uh for that TV across the web. And uh I I'll never forget the day I was at home really de- you know depressed cuz I'd shut down the magazine and I was in a lot of debt. Um My mom and I were living together and I came across this job listing uh, that was titled product manager Mm -hmm. and I never even heard that term. Even though I had been in tech my whole life, I was a programmer all through um, middle school and and high school and college, I had never heard the term product manager. and When I read the job description, I had never read a job description that resonated with me more. Mm -hmm. It just felt like it spoke to me. And so I applied for the job and I went in and I did five hours of interviews um, with the leaders at the company. And I was fortunate enough to get a job there and I worked there for I think two, maybe two and a half years. And that was really where I began to understand what it takes to build a successful technology company because was, it was all around me 24-7. What,
2: what did you learn? I mean what was the biggest takeaway that you, know, you still apply today?
0: Yeah, I think if if you ask anyone at Clutter what is Ari obsessed with the most, they would probably say people. Mm. Just like surrounding himself with great people. And my definition of great is very different than I think most people's. And that comes from my days at Shopzilla. You know, the company was successful. The company ended up exiting to Scripps, and East Coast publishing company, for a half a billion dollars. But it was never as successful as it could have been. Um, and the reason why I say that is it was one of the most talented teams that i'd ever I, that I've ever had an opportunity to work with. Mm-hmm. Everyone in every position was just an absolute all star. and so sometimes knowing that great people like that exist is is uh is priceless H-
2: How do you find those people? i mean it's I don't want to say it's hard, but it's definitely a process to find the great people to help build your team and eventually help build your vision. So, you know, wh- how is that process like for you?
0: It's definitely a process and at times, you know, there's definitely a team member at clutter that hates me <laughs> for that process. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a massive investment of time. So, to give you a sense of how much time it takes, usually when we create a new job role, if you look at a traditional company, they try their best to interview five people. And then at the end of it, they'll say, OK, one of these you know, men or women is good enough. Let's give them the job offer. And so they'll fill that role in no more than 90 days, uh, typically in probably 45 days. Hmm. When we post a job, we come to terms with the reality that it will take six to nine months to fill the role. And the reason why it takes six to, mi- six to nine months to fill the role is you know, if you're starting with 1,000 resumes, for example, to review, the rate at which we let a resume turn into a phone call is probably 20%. Hmm. So 800 resumes just got put aside. So now you're at 200 resumes. Now you jump on a 30-minute phone screen. What we do differently versus other companies is we try to put the most senior person available on that 30-minute phone screen, not the most junior. So you put the most senior person available because they have the most experience, and the idea is if they have the most experience, then they have the best pattern recognition for what a talented candidate looks like, or in this case, sounds like, because yeah. it's a phone screen. Yeah. And they'll do a 30-minute phone screen. About only 30, you know, depending on who the, the interviewer is, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30% of candidates get past the phone screen, right? So uh, that phone screen then turns into a case study. So we ask you to do a take-home homework assignment. Of that, only about a third of candidates get past that stage. And then we ask you to come in for in-person interviews. It's five one-hour interviews with a variety of different team members across the company. About half the people that come in get a job offer. Mm -hmm. If you look at the numbers... You know, that means that, you know, less than 20 bips or, you know, um, two-tenths of a percent of people get a job at Clutter. Mm -hmm. And so that takes time. Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. And also, like, just planning ahead of time and vision, just kind of knowing, like, in a year we need to have this person in this position. we got to get started right now.
0: It forces you to do that, quite frankly. There are a lot of leaders at Clutter – that will come to me and say, we really need XYZ uh, position filled. Mm-hmm. And we should just hire this person. And I'll say, look, you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You didn't plan for this role. Mm-hmm. And so now you have to feel the pain. And the pain is you're not going to have this role filled for six months because the last thing we're going to do as an organization is put butts in seats. Yeah. That's the worst thing you can do.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: And it takes time and coaching to get leaders there. But what's really nice is once they finally do get that individual, they they're, they're you, you've never seen someone so happy because they they genuinely feel like they have the right person in the right position. Mm-hmm.
1: Of course. Um, so uh, kind of going back to when you were um, a product manager at Shopzilla, you were there for a couple of years, and then um, you continued in product management for another couple of years at LowerMyBills.com, uh, and then you end- eventually started your own business, GumGum. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, after Shopzilla, I... Went to go work for another great entrepreneur in LA, a guy named Matt Coffin, at a company called Walmart Bills, and mm-hmm. I was there for maybe a year. And uh, my best friend at the time, Ophir, and I decided that it was time to become entrepreneurs again. He had also been an entrepreneur and taken some time off, and I was ready to, you know, throw my hat back in the ring. And so we started brainstorming ideas, and we came up for uh, we came up with the idea for gum gum and the basic premise of gum gum hasn't really changed too much since inception which was there's a lot of visual media on the web how do we a understand what that visual media is and b how do we drive value from that visual media and so we started the company and uh 10 years later it's still operating today Employs over 250 people worldwide they uh you know, brought in over 100 million in revenue in 2017, and uh, it's been a great ride.
1: So that was kind of like your first um, big business, essentially, that you had. That built, was my right? first
0: venture-backed startup that I co-founded.
1: So what was, I guess, um, the biggest maybe challenge when go, kind of going from a you know a job at, a, at another company to like starting your own business? And I'm sure you know this was what in your late 20s or early yeah that was in my yeah late 20s. 20s. Yeah. So what was that process like? And what was the biggest challenge for you?
0: Well, you you know, frankly, when you're working for someone else, as an entrepreneur, it feels like a vacation. Because when you're working for someone else, you don't get the stresses, the day-to-day stresses of running a business. Yeah. When you go home, you clock out. Mm. Psychologically. You may still respond to emails, but your stress levels take a step function down. As an entrepreneur, my stress levels never go down. Mm. I'll wake up at four in the morning they just compound because it's hot <laughs> in the room. But as soon as I wake up, my mind starts working. I'm at the gym. I'm in the shower. It's just always, you know, you're always going. And so I always tell people like, you know, uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you're burnt out, go work for someone else.
1: Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? Um, like, obviously, in certain cases, for certain folks, it might be out of fear. For certain folks, it might be out of excitement. For certain folks, it might be you know, the unknown of like what's going to happen or uh, just you know, the, the, the desire to continue to iterate. Like what, could, what else could we be doing right now that could take us to the next level? Like I guess for you specifically, like, w- is it a combination of all those things or is it one in particular?
0: Most people are afraid to fail. I was never afraid to fail. The reason why I was never afraid to fail was I did a thought exercise pretty early on Uh, in my life where I imagined a dartboard across the room. And I asked myself, if you put a monkey in front of that dartboard and you give him a few darts, is he going to hit bullseye? And the answer was no. But then I asked myself, if you give him an infinite number of darts, is that monkey eventually going to hit bullseye? And the answer was yes. And so I knew if I just never sat down and I always stood up and I always threw darts at the board, eventually I would hit bills I once and and that one time, I would know exactly what to do with that opportunity and I would try to maximize it and drive as much value from it as possible. For me, the reason why entrepreneurship is stressful is the opportunity cost of my time. I have to genuinely believe that I'm creating as much value as I possibly can with whatever startup I'm co-founding than any other opportunity. And Clutter is, the, is frankly the first startup I've ever co-founded where deep down I know there's no better use of my time.
2: What made you feel that way?
0: So, you know, it's interesting. When, um, when I pitched Clutter to Sequoia Capital, that was not the first time I had pitched Sequoia Capital. It was actually the fifth time I had pitched Sequoia Capital. But not Literally, for a Clutter. But not for Clutter. I had pitched them uh, two other companies twice over each uh, over the course of eight years or something. Uh, and each time they always gave me the same feedback, which was this just isn't big enough. And what that means is the market size wasn't big enough to warrant an investment from them.
1: Yeah. so it sounded like they liked you it's just like the idea wasn't there like yeah come and ba- they even like the
0: idea they just were like it's just not big enough yeah. it doesn't warrant yeah. you know a venture investment from the top firm in the world mm-hmm. and the first time first few times I heard that I really hated it mm-hmm. because I think deep down I knew what they were saying which is this is not a good use of your time
1: and when, was one of these pocket change
0: one of them was Pocket Change, which was,
1: was a virtual currency, right? Yeah. Was yeah. this before like the Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One so of them was Pocket could, could have been one big was, enough, and but... one of them was Gum Gum. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's not that they were saying you can't create a business here. Yeah. And, and it's not that they were saying you can't create a business that makes a hundred million dollars a year. What they were saying is you can do so much more. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, when you know we came up with the idea for Clutter. I had two requirements. One was I wanted it to be consumer-facing yeah. because I wanted to create a brand that people loved. And two, it had to be absolutely massive. And that second question, it was: there was never a doubt in our heads that clutter was going to be very, very big.
2: Just to challenge, I guess, you a little bit, and maybe it'll get you thinking as well. Why, I mean, two questions. Number one, why did you keep going back to Sequoia? And number two, why Why this desire to do something massive?
0: This is going to sound incredibly weird, but for as long as I remember from the age of 10, I've just always believed I have a manifest destiny to do this. I always, if you ask my mom, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I'd pick up magazines and I'd be like, I'm going to be that guy or that woman one day. Like, I'm going to be very, very, very successful. Um, and uh, And so it was important to me to make sure I was spending my time on the right opportunities. And why Sequoia was, and why did I go back to them so many times? It was important to me uh, to surround myself with the best resources possible. Mm. And uh, and I don't like losing.
2: What was your de- what was your definition of success, I guess, as that 10, 11-year-old kid, and what is your definition of success now?
0: So it's interesting, you know, uh, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, when you're picking up a copy of Forbes magazine, it's just to be in the Forbes top 200 list because mm-hmm. you don't really understand anything other than yeah. a bunch of commas and zeros, exactly. right? Um Now that I'm older and I realize you can't really spend that money. Uh, <laughs> you don't <know, laughs> have, have the time to spend the money. So you, don't you have the you time buy to buy time too. Yeah, you and you don't have the time <laughs> to spend the money. And frankly, you shouldn't even spend the money because you should be doing you know things that create value for uh society with that money. But mm. now I look at it as... How many consumers' lives am I touching slash, in, you know, improving? Mm-hmm. And so there's a long ways to go.
1: So um, I think I saw on your LinkedIn profile, it said uh, that you're the idea guy. That's your headline. Uh, and yeah. you said you kind of touched on the, uh, the, you know, that you came up with the idea for Clutter. Tell us about how that came about.
0: Yeah. Uh, I-, I consider my superpower to be a creative problem solver. Mm. And so if you put a challenge or a problem in front of me, I'll come up with an idea or a solution that I think most people haven't thought about. Um, that's what I take pride in. That's what I've spent most of my life working on um, developing as a skill. To answer your question specifically, how did the idea for Clutter um, come about? So we started – we officially started the business in January of 2015. But the idea came about in 2013. And my co-founder Brian and I were talking to each other on a weekly basis, wanting to start a business together, and we were struggling to find an idea that – met our minimum, you know, requirements. And so I remember one day I said to Brian, you know, the best ideas come from personal pain Mm. or personal struggles or challenges, whatever it may be. That tells me that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And so I said, Brian, let's just spend the next week thinking about stuff that annoys us. Yeah. And he came back to me the following week and he said, this isn't my problem, but my mom is just constantly complaining about self-storage. And I said, well, what's the problem with it? And he goes, She's been, she doesn't know what we have in our self-storage unit. And it's really annoying for her to have to go into the unit and rummage around and pick stuff out. And I said, okay, well, you've, you've identified the problem. Let's think through potential solutions. And at that moment in time, on-demand companies were really starting to boom. Mm-hmm. Uber was starting to get escape velocity. Mm-hmm. And for me, the dots just connected. Mm-hmm. I said, Brian, I think this is actually the one category where it makes sense to apply the on-demand model and, because your mom shouldn't be storing her stuff in her backyard in Marina Del Rey where land is expensive and it's scarce. We should go into her home, do all the moving and packing for her, and in exchange, she should allow us to store her stuff wherever we want, and we should go store it two hours outside the city where land is cheap and it's plentiful, yeah, and that concept was developed right there that second, and it hasn't changed since. Uh, and that's really the key to clutter: is that we're using technology and people to really leverage a business model innovation. Yeah.
1: Something that we always deal with, and, and we hear this all the time too, is like. You know, when you're young and you you come up with your first or second idea, and especially if you went to business school, you know what I'm talking about is like, you know, you have to sit down and like take it step by step, right? Like come up with a business plan, do your market research, you know, do the financials, like what's the opportunity here, blah, blah, blah. But like when you're kind of down the road and you you've had so many ideas and you're almost like burned out to the point where it's like, I just wanna start like I know this is gonna be successful, like I just wanna start it. I guess in this case, um, how did you how much time did you spend doing your market research, seeing how big the opportunity was because public storage is a space that maybe, I don't know, I don't know if you knew a lot about before. So no, I t- tell us about that.
0: You know, it's interesting, especially going to Marshall, they really drill into your head the importance of a business plan. Yeah. But as a young entrepreneur, the last thing you want to do is write a business plan. I hated the idea of a business plan. For years, I went around telling everyone how stupid it was uh, that Marshall was telling people to write business plans. Yeah. But I wish I had for every company I ever started because what I would have found was either there is no customer acquisition strategy that scales or the margins aren't uh, large enough to create a sustainable business or the market size isn't big enough. And so when it came to clutter, I had finally realized the value of a business plan. Now, I didn't do what Marshall wants you to do, which is a 20-page business Mm -hmm. plan. We just did a one-page executive summary where it was like, this is our customer acquisition strategy, this is the margin profile, and this is the TAM or the market size. Um, And then we did a bunch of research on the industry, on consumer behavior um, for the next year, year and a half. I was part-time. Brian was part-time. Brian was going to Anderson at UCLA. He was spending more time than I was during that year and a half on clutter but both of our, both of us were not fully vested, invested. Um, but then there came a time towards the end of two thousand fourteen, early two thousand fifteen, where we said, "Look, we've, we know everything there is to know about this industry, and we still love this idea, and we also now know how we're going to make this a business, to take it from an idea to a company." And so, in January two thousand fifteen. We started, and, and then it's been a rocket ship ever since.
2: And obviously, you had to raise money to you know start this idea. You had the idea. What was that immediate, besides all the research that went into it, what was the immediate next step in terms of, well, okay, we're going to need money, and we're going to need resources and people to actually get this done, because we can't do it just you know Ari and Brian.
0: I, I called up my friend, Adam Ross, who is an investor in tech startups, and I called up my mentor, David Sachs, who's also an investor and, and founder in, in companies. Yammer, right? Yammer and yeah. um, uh, and, uh, and was one of the founding team members at PayPal. And I said to the two of them, I don't have any investment materials for you to look at, but trust me, this is a very, very, very big opportunity and I haven't seen anything like this uh, since Uber hmm. in terms of the, the scale. And they... Both wrote checks on that statement alone. Uh,
2: those are some good friends.
0: Well, I've I've known them for a long time. <laughs> luckily, you know it pays to um, to uh, build a reputation yeah. and, and work on uh, you know creating those relationships over time. Mm-hmm. And so they invested, and uh, we took that money, and we made it into some more. We we created some more proof points out of it, and then raised more money. And that's kind of what you do as a founder: is you're just always trying to prove. That you should be there, and then when you prove it, people give you more money.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what were those early days like? Was it just you and Brian, just kind of, you know, doing everything yourself, or like did you already have a team from the get-go? Like, what were those first, like maybe that one year one and year two, like?
0: Well, year year one and year two were very different. So, year one was like I said. So, both him and I were part time, but he had he was investing a lot more of his time than I was. Yeah. I was traveling, um, trying to decompress from my second startup, Pocket Change, failing. Uh, and talking to him maybe on a weekly basis about clutter. And he was going to grad school, um, but he was in L.A., so he was spending a lot more of his time on clutter. Uh, so that we like to both you know, say that the first year was just really R&D. The second ye- year when I was back in L.A. and he had graduated from Anderson is really when we threw ourselves into the business. That first year of the business in 2015 was all about marketing and sales we believed that every single penny that we had should go into the marketing funnel um, and we should do whatever we can to make sure that the customers that that marketing funnel produces, we can serve. And in that first year, we saw a tremendous amount of growth and then we leveraged that growth to go raise proper financing from Sequoia, which was in uh, October of 2015. Mm -hmm. And so it was about nine months of just... uh, intense single-mindedness on growth. Mm-hmm. And then once we got the capital from Sequoia, we focused on team building.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of times the founders that we've interviewed have two different viewpoints. Some love fundraising and others hate it like passionately. They they would rather be doing anything else than raising money. What were your feelings about it?
0: In the entrepreneur community, I'm known as someone that loves it. Mm-hmm. And And the reason why I love it is because without the capital, I wouldn't be able to create any of these companies. Most of these companies uh, require a lot of capital to get off the ground. And I've been doing it for so long that it's a muscle that's fully, (laughs) you know, that I've fully built. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's easy. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everyone says yes to me. But I don't go through the emotional ups and downs anymore. Yeah. Most of my peers that are entrepreneurs that are raising venture capital for the first time, if you meet them at any point in that fundraising process, they'll either be the happiest person in the world or the most depressed. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to just smooth out the emotions.
2: Someone once told me, and actually this someone was the head fundraiser at USC uh, when they were doing the whole $6, 7000000000 billion campaign recently. And he said, because I had asked him, I said, you know, how do you raise so much money? Like, it's It's insane. And he said, "Let me tell you something. It was something that obviously someone else had said, but he was quoting that person. he said, "When you ask someone for money, you get advice. But when you ask somebody for advice, you get money. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, "Oh, that makes sense." Because he, he's like, I could go up to someone and say, "Oh, we need 50 million dollars to build this." And they'll say, "Oh, you know, great idea, but you could do it in 20. You know You don't need 50 million. So do you feel like you ever used you know, that approach? in your fundraising or was it something else that makes you
0: such a strong fundraiser? I love that advice but that was not me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And
1: I feel like it works with like, you know, angel investing but like for the VC, you're not going to go into a VC meeting and say, hey guys, what what do you think? No, it's great
0: (laughs) advice but that wasn't me. I was successful raising venture capital because I ran it like a marketing and sales process Mm -hmm. where it was very structured. I knew what work I needed to do before starting the process. I knew what Needed to be done to complete the process, and I did it all using a constrained timeline to create a sense of urgency. And now a lot of people have written about this. Mark Schuster has a great blog called Both Sides of the Table. He writes about this a lot, mm-hmm. and now it's common knowledge. But back then, I just viewed it as any other marketing and sales exercise, and I said, "Look, there's 50, you know 50 people that can write checks." Uh, you know, let's talk to all of them, and let's make sure it's the same message, and let's make sure that I have answers to all their questions, mm-hmm. and that I that they're working on my timeline, I'm not working on theirs, so that you know we can create pressure.
2: Mm-hmm. It's been about what three, a little over three years now that you started Clutter. You yep. raised the Series C, I think last year, sixty four yep. million, if I remember remembering correctly. Yep. What is the you know near future looking like for Clutter, and then also you know beyond that? I know you're going to expand. I saw something that you were saying that you want to expand worldwide. Um, but you know, are those steps already into motion or is that something that's coming in a few years?
0: So right now we're in seven markets, like mm-hmm. I mentioned <laughs> earlier. And our focus as an organization is on team building. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is the more successful we are as a company, the more scale mm-hmm. that we uh, reach, the more people we need to just even maintain that scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we're very much focused on getting the right people in the right positions and creating the foundation for us to be able to then pursue much more aggressive growth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the kind of the metaphor I always use is I always say if you look at a skyscraper, uh, it takes 12 months of just building out the foundation nothing no work is done above the surface level but that you know 50 floor or 75 floor skyscraper once the foundation is set goes up in less than six months yeah and so only 30 percent of the time it takes to build a skyscraper is 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 really spent doing any work that the outside world sees most of it is underground and and that's what we're doing right now Mm
1: -hmm. so on that topic of team building um Obviously, in your case, you spend a lot of time and, I'm sure, resources to find the right folks um, to fill those positions. And as, as I'm sure many other startups and companies do is like spend a lot of time and resources and money. Um, once, once you do bring them through the door and they're employed, how do you keep them around? How do you keep them happy? And how do you keep them doing their best work?
0: So I'm a firm believer that the the two big reasons why most people leave companies are one they're not being compensated fairly and so it's really important you always as a people organization have an understanding of what the competitive rates are for an individual and the second reason why people leave companies is that they are they they come to the realization that they're surrounded by idiots whether it's idiots at the peer level or idiots that they manage, or at the leadership level. And so, one of the things that we work really hard at at Clutter is to make sure that we surround people with other people that they're quite frankly impressed by, mm-hmm. that they can learn from, that they're challenged by, that they respect.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you know, it's also important to have a vision or a purpose that people are aligned with, but you can have the most altruistic company in the world. If you don't do the first two things right, pe- talented people are not going to stay. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you're doing for the world. Talented people will not stay if they don't respect the people that they work with mm-hmm. because then they know whatever the mission statement is, they're not going to be able to actually um, accomplish it because they don't have team members they can work with that they trust. And if you're not compensating them, then they know that they won't be successful at, accomplishing that mission because they're dealing with the day-to-day stresses of being financially burdened
2: Mm -hmm. as a founder as an entrepreneur you've obviously done several several things now over the years um pat and i all the time will hear you know several ideas from our friends and family oh we want to do this we want to do that but we don't have the money to do it but what what does it take to just to just do it
0: I found that most people fail to become entrepreneurs because they foresee too many of the problems. They're frankly just a little too thoughtful. If you spend too much time thinking about the problems, you'll scare yourself out of the opportunity. And so I like to say the most successful entrepreneurs are quite frankly blind optimists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a seasoned entrepreneur, I'm not as blind as I was, but I still try to be. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you'll just never get started.
1: So, uh, you're in this zone now that you're kind of building this company and obviously there's so much more to go and so much more to grow. What do you do, I guess, when you're not working? Uh, <laughs> well, so, just like one hour of the day maybe
0: no 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 I <laughs> one of our values at clutter is it's a marathon not a sprint we work hard yep. to be clear I work probably six days a week but we don't work as hard as some other companies in the world uh, because we genuinely do believe it's a marathon so I like to spend my time either trying to work on my personal health so I'll go to the gym every day for 45 minutes before the start of the day i'll spend my time going to museums i'm an avid fan of art uh, and all things creative and then obviously the normal food and beverage with your friends and family yeah maybe sometimes more beverage than food (laughs) (laughs) depending on how the week went yeah
2: what would you say is one of your favorite museums out here in l.a uh
0: so this is funny even though i you know I i I equally like cars. I think the Peterson Automotive Museum is uh, one of a kind. Yeah, that's a new one. Outside and shirt. inside. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm a critic of the architecture. Mm-hmm. I think they could have picked a better red. But once Darker. you. Uh, yes, yeah. totally. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little too flashy.
0: Yeah. Yes. I would have gone with like a, a burnt or a burgundy or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. But once you're <laughs> inside those four walls, those cars are beautiful. I want every one of them.
1: You mentioned physical health. Uh, another topic that we hear a lot, um, especially in the founder community, is mental health, um, mm-hmm. and and how important that is. Because I feel like, kind of going back to your point about like just kind of doing it, and you know, mm-hmm. your question, just doing it, and you kind of like head down, you're just kind of focused, and you don't really think too much about anything else, and you, you keep yourself busy. But there are moments, as a founder, many moments where, you know, it's not so focused and, I guess, positive. Like exactly, yeah, yeah. There are times when you're just down and was. things aren't, might not be working out or you're just thinking about the future and just like, I don't know, maybe fearful, worried. How do you maintain your mental health?
0: So I think there's three approaches, right? The, the first is to go see professional help, which I recommend to anyone that needs it. Um, I haven't chosen to go down that path because I've leveraged two different strategies. One is I try to be as transparent with the people I work with and my friends and family about how I feel about the business, and sometimes just saying how you feel about the business helps a lot. And so we'll have an all hands, and you know the first thing I'll say is, "Geez, I'm really fucking stressed right now," and and this is why, and that helps me immediately. Uh, the other thing that I've leveraged in the past is. So there's a great investment firm named First Round Capital. Mm -hmm. And they put together uh, a support group for their CEOs where six to eight of us would meet on a monthly basis and we would talk to each other about our respective problems. It could be personal, it could be professional, it could be whatever you want to talk about. Very similar to Uh, another organization named YPO. Mm -hmm. I liked this one more than YPO because it was all tech founders and I just found it more valuable. But that was great. Sometimes just hearing that other people are having the same problem or experiencing the same problems you're experiencing goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have that anymore now that I moved back from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And I've been thinking about uh, joining YPO. But... Frankly, I'm also at a point in my career now where I've seen enough of this where very little gets to me. Mm. And so I don't personally need the the support groups as much as I did in the past, but I'll probably still join YPL just for sanity's sake.
2: How do you? How would you say you've dealt with that feeling of instant gratification? Because a lot of times, as entrepreneurs and founders, and you know, when you're reading that, you know, Forbes magazine as a kid, and I mean, I've done the same. I think I have like an Instagram picture of me with a Forbes magazine with caption <laughs> like "I'll be on it soon" or something like that. Nice. Um, I want, to, I want to be at that level, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah. And obviously, day after day, you realize like that's not the case. Right. How do you? How do you mentally deal
0: with that? Well, I remember I was uh, 18 and a half. And I, you know, 18 and a half is yeah. key. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to USC. And I woke up one day and I said, Holy fuck, I haven't done shit with my life. Like I thought I was going to be Bill Gates by then. Freshman and year. I had just lost focus. I should be dropping out at any time. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and I just lost focus. So I, I went to work. And year after year, it didn't happen but I made progress and I started to come to terms with as long as I make progress, it will happen one day. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen on the timeline. I originally imagined now uh, 15 years into it or 15. Yeah. 15 years into it. I'm starting to feel like I've I'm closer than I ever have been. And now I'm more patient than I ever have, Mm -hmm. than I have ever, than I ever have been because I know as long as I don't give up, it'll happen one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the reason why I think I'm more mature about this topic now is I realized along the way how much luck is involved. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be the smartest person in the room. You could be the hardest working person in the room. But if you don't get lucky at all, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen.
2: And uh, Guy Ross, who has the How I Built This podcast, um, he always his last question is always, you know, was it luck or was it skill or you know whatever? And he'll always stutter when he says it. I love it. Um, and I think one of the people that actually we interviewed said, you know, if you refuse to believe that luck has anything to do with it, you're you're an asshole. Like you're just like the most arrogant person because I agree. It doesn't. It just doesn't work out that way. Um, but just to kind of wrap this up, I know, I know you said that you love creative problem solving. So along the way I was thinking, oh, maybe we Uh-oh. can, maybe we can, maybe, <laughs> maybe we can, maybe we can exercise, you know, these powers. Um, one of my biggest issues and I th- not even my biggest issue, I think as an Angelino, if you, if you know, if you've lived here for more than, you know, two days, you've experienced like traffic, yeah. you know, in, in the city. Um, d- first of all, do you believe that there is some sort of solution, you know? And if so, like when can we see that solution?
0: So I'm quite passionate about the topic of traffic because (laughs) – Me too. I – you know, after I – before I started Clutter and after I shut down pocket change, I was fortunate enough to have a break where I could travel. And so I spent a year traveling the world. I went to 23 countries. And I came back and everyone was like, what did you learn? And I said that every city has a lot of traffic. Like, it's not an L.A. problem. Like, it, it's naive to think it's an L.A. problem. It's the traffic in London is worse than L.A. The traffic in New York right now is worse than L.A.
1: Is it the density? Like, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it, L.A. So,
0: right now, 55% of the world's population lives in cities. In the next 10 years, I believe... I don't actually... I don't know the time frame, but I think in the next decade or two, that's going to go up to 75%. Hmm. And that's a problem. Now... L.A. specifically, I believe the solution is twofold. One, you allow for these micro towns to develop. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Century City is the, fir- is, the, is the first, I think, real instance of that. The Westfield Mall has everything you need. Yeah. Ice cream shops, supermarkets, movie theaters, dry cleaning. And they're starting to build skyscrapers <laughs> around it. Mm-hmm. That is the beginning of something very big that will transform LA and any other city in the world. Now you connect that with what Elon's working with, which is underground tubes the and transportation, transportation and tubes and
2: flamethrowers. Or in his words, not a flamethrower. Yeah, not a flamethrower. I was going to correct you. Yeah, not a flamethrower. Not, a, gonna, flamethrower. Yeah, not exactly. a flamethrower. Not a flamethrower. <laughs> By the way, that's a,
0: I just love that whole <laughs> yeah, project. He's, it's it's he's, a, he's a character. He doesn't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> so if, if you connect these like these these micro Cities uh, with underground transportation, problem solved. Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah.
1: Well, all right, it's been a great conversation. Um, you know, the company you've built and continue to build, uh, you know, and shaping really the LA tech culture um, is, is amazing. And, you know, we're excited to see hopefully more. Is it teal? Is that the color? How do you teal? teal yeah. More teal <laughs> trucks, you know, yeah. around, around town and around the world. So thank, thank you. you so much for your time and sharing your story.
0: No, thanks, thank you guys. You. I appreciate it. Yeah.